come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. listeners to episode 136 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i'm your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio and in this episode for you here for you i have my trek to the twos number 10 as i have two featured reviews of the new david cronenberg film crimes of the future i went to the gateway film center to watch that movie there and then i'm pairing that up with 1932's behind the mask now, this is kind of an interesting double feature here is one of the movies is a futuristic body horror sci-fi movie where the other one is a crime ring where we have a person who is trying to infiltrate it and try to break it up. So I guess we are looking at humanity and its different type of forms there. And then also on this episode for you, I have mini reviews of The Void, Wild Zero, Spring, and Ravenous, the one from 1999. Don't think there's anything else I need to get to the speed with here. So what I will say then is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Let me get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini review for you is one that I've actually already covered on the show, but I'll get back to that in just a second. And that's going to be The Void from 2016. This was written and directed by Jeremy Gillespie and Stephen Kostansky. This stars Aaron Poole, Kenneth Welsh, and Ellen Wong, as well as also featuring Kathleen Monroe. This is a horror mystery sci-fi thriller film that is from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being... Shortly after delivering a patient to an understaffed hospital, a police officer experiences strange and violent occurrences seemingly linked to a group of mysterious hooded figures. So this is a movie that I actually covered as a mini-review back on episode number 18, which was Centennial Club number 2, which that one had The Invisible Man from 2020, as well as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1920. So this is a movie that I had watched back then with Jamie as she had never seen it before. That was my second watch. 
I have now given it a third one as I was in the theater at the Gateway Film Center as part of their Mammoth Monday series. So if you want to hear more of my thoughts, I would definitely direct you back there. But I would recommend seeing this. If you're into surreal horror films that bend reality, I think you'll enjoy this one. It has cults, monsters, and things to this effect. It does well in making you feel things that are happening in this are real. And it also nods to like H.P. Lovecraft and cosmic horror. The acting I thought was good enough as what is happening around them is a true star. The effects in this are great. I think this is a good movie. I wouldn't say it's for everyone. If the things that I've said that you're into, then give this one a go. Each time I watch this one, my rating seems to hover around the same number. That is consistency there for me. So I have come down slightly after my last viewing, but I mean, I still have The Void as an 8 out of 10. And for my second mini review for you, I have Wild Zero. This is from 1999. This is directed by Tensaro Takauchi. This was also written by them as well as Satoshi Takaji. This stars Guitar Wolf, Drum Wolf, and Bass Wolf. This is a comedy, horror, music, sci-fi thriller film that is from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being... Only legendary Japanese garage rock band Guitar Wolf can stand between a race of aliens from destroying Earth with an army of zombies. So this is a movie that I heard about thanks to podcasts. What I knew was that this was from Asia and that it was wild. Outside of that, I didn't know much more. This one came up as a potential pick for the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs, so I decided to give it a watch to see if I was on board with that. So since it could be over there, I... We'll say this is a wild movie. That is fun. The characters are also that way. They all bring their own flair to what they're doing, which is good. I don't mind the idea of aliens creating zombies, but I think it misses something by not giving us why. The look of the creatures were good, as were the practical effects. The CGI doesn't work for me, but it also doesn't ruin it, as the movie is comedic. I think that we just got a bit more story or introduce us to a bit more would have made this work better for me. With how it is, I still enjoyed it, and I'd say this is an above-average movie. I am not going to give my rating just because it could be on the Summer Series episode. So what I will say is that if you are into some wild movies, especially from Asia, give this one a go for sure. And then up next for you, I have another rewatch, and this one is Spring from 2014. This was written and directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. This was written by Benson. This stars Lou Taylor Pucci, Nadia Hilker, and Francisco Carnaluti. This is a horror romance sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a young man in a personal tailspin flees from the United States to Italy, where he sparks up a romance with a woman harboring a dark and primordial secret. So this was a film that I have to give credit to my sister for seeing for the first time. I'm not entirely sure how she got turned on to it. It is interesting as this is the first one that I saw from Benson and Moorhead. I'm a big fan of them and all the works that I've seen from them. Now I have to give my second watch thanks to the Fright Club podcast as they showed it at the Gateway Film Center. So I got to see it on the big screen. So I want to lead off here is that this one is different from the other films that Benson and Moorhead have done. I must give credit to Hope and George from Fright Club as that's who said it first and I kept that in mind while watching this and I think they're right. This shows they have range. Where I'll go first would be that I like the story. Evan's life is falling apart around him so he decides to take a trip to clear his head. This is something that is quite relatable the first time that I saw it. 
His father died when he graduated college, and then his mother was diagnosed with cancer soon after. That doesn't match me, but I have been in a couple of bad relationships, so I got that depression aspect that we got here. On top of that, he finds a beautiful woman who he falls for and tries his best to woo her. This again is something that many, including myself, can relate to. Seeing what he goes through and how it makes him grow, I think adds a bit of depth to this as well. Now this is also a creature feature of sorts with what happens to Louise. I found her backstory to be quite interesting and it had me constantly guessing. There is something that I liked in that. In that first viewing, I thought she might be a vampire, werewolf, and other things at different times. I commend the movie to keep me guessing. It is funny that there is a part where Evan even asks her this. What ends up being the truth is interesting. I think this is where we get that Benson and Moorhead touch as it's also Lovecraftian. They love using elements like this in their works. Before moving away from this as well, I did have my issues with the ending the first time that I saw it. It could have gone one of two ways and with the second watch it doesn't bother me nearly as much. So next should be the acting. I think this is something that was good. I thought that Pucci was believable and I connected with him. I will share a little bit about me personally here is that when I'm interested in a woman, I tend to jump in with both feet. That's exactly what Pucci does and I feel horrible for him when Luis is breaking it off. It causes him to break down which I connected with. Now it's interesting is I didn't care for his character in Evil Dead Remake, but what he does here works better for me. Hilker is beautiful and it's hard to fault her for trying to do what she does to Evan. She is trying to protect him. I found her to be believable as well. I also wanted to commend Cardaluti as he is great as the old man. I liked his role in the film. Other than that, I liked cameos by Jeremy Gardner and Viddy Curran. I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. So the last things to go into would be the filmmaking. The cinematography was good. I come to expect that from this directing duo, even though this is only their second movie. They just have an eye for it. And I think they're strategic with their editing. I also wanted to point out here, they do some interesting stuff with soft focuses, especially when people are hungover, and I like what they did there. They had to use CGI when Luis was changing. I'm guessing that was to hide the computer effects. That works, and I think that the practical ones were solid to go along with them. Other than that, there is the soundtrack. I don't recall much in the way of music, and it didn't do much to alter that feeling of the scene. There were times where there was no music, and they used nature as the sounds. I feel that they, you know, kind of have an added dimension here, especially for the end of the film. So now with that said, I enjoyed this one. We have an odd blend of horror, romance, and sci-fi. The romance part tugged at my heartstrings, and I felt for the lead. Since I connected with him, it did affect my rating positively. I also like that they put a little sci-fi in there to explain what she is, and while still trying to be Lovecraftian, I liked the story, and I thought that was interesting. The acting was good. They do well in the cinematography and editing to hide some of the CGI. Practical effects are solid. If this sounds good, I would recommend this as being an interesting little lesser talked about horror film from the 2010s. So my rating for spring is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And then my last mini review here for you is going to be Ravenous. This is from 1999. This was directed by Antonia Bird. It was written by Ted Griffin. It stars Guy Pearce, Robert Carlyle, and David Arquette. This is an adventure horror western film that is a co-production between the United Kingdom, Mexico, United States, and Czech Republic. This is sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb, nice, and a 3.6 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, in a remote military outpost in 19th century, Captain John Boyd and his regiment embank on a rescue mission which takes a dark turn when they're ambushed by a sadistic cannibal. So this is another one that I am watching as part of the Summer Challenge series as a potential pick. 
and I actually remember when this came out. I had never saw it. I think this is one that wouldn't really have been one that I could fully appreciate because of the depth that it has. It is one that's always intrigued me, so I'm glad that this actually came up when I was doing the podcast under the stairs as the People's Council. And then I am now doing it as a potential, you know, pick as I was saying. So with that said then, I ended up enjoying this one both times that I've seen it. I wish I hadn't waited so long though. The period that it's set does help to bring this to life as it's something that probably could have happened, which we do know about the Donner Party. The folklore of the Wendigo adds an extra layer and I think that the acting really does as well. It is paced interesting where I'm never bored and the tension just builds to a solid climax and ending. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but what we do get looked real. I will admit the soundtrack was hit or miss overall, but it does have some good moments. I would recommend this if you're into period pieces or interested in seeing the darker side of life in the West. I found this to be a good film overall. And since I'm not going to give my rating here, I would definitely recommend this one in general. So if you've never seen this one, give it a watch. So that's all I'm going to do here for mini reviews. So let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review here on this episode. I can feel you pulling things around in there. It's a brand new organ. Never before seen. We've all felt that the body was empty. Empty of meaning. And we've wanted to confirm that. So that we could fill it with meaning. The world is a much more dangerous place now that pain has all but disappeared. to map the chaos inside. Let us create a map that will guide us into the heart of darkness. And for my first featured review here for you is going to be Crimes of the Future. This is from here in 2022. It was written and directed by David Cronenberg. It stars Leah Seydoux, Kristen Stewart, and Viggo Mortensen, while also featuring Scott Speedman, Tayana Betty, Lehi Kornowski, Denise Kapazia, Don McKellar, Nadia Litz, Yorgos Perpasapolos, Velkit Dungi, Effie Kantza, Jason Bitter, and Zozos Satiris. And if I mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize. This is a drama horror sci-fi film that is a co-production between Canada, France, Greece, and United Kingdom. 
It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being, humans adapt to a synthetic environment with new transformations and mutations. With his partner Caprice, Saul Tenser, celebrity performance artist, publicly showcases metamorphosis of his organs in an avant-garde performances. And that's a mouthful to say, by the way. So this is a movie that I was excited when I heard that it was coming out. My interest was piqued even more when I saw the reception from Cannes and that it was coming to the Gateway Film Center. Now, I'm a big Cronenberg fan, so that helped me as well. Other than that, I tried to come in as blind as I could. From what I knew, though, this was based on a short that he made in the past and that this was going to be different from that one. So I'm not sure if he fleshed it out more or if this is a new take. I've actually kind of done a little bit of research after writing that little blurb there, and I do believe that this is just sharing the same name. So before I jump into the recap and my thoughts, I want to start with some of our keynotes on some of the key people here, and that will be with David Cronenberg, who is great. He has 41 credits as a director. Of them, I've seen 16. He is currently my fifth most watched director. To start with his movies that are not in horror, I've seen A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, Cosmopolis, and A Dangerous Method. Twelve of his are in horror, and I've seen ten. The only two I haven't are shorts. He started with Shivers, Rabid, The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, The Dead Zone, The Fly, Dead Ringers, Existence, and now this. As a writer, he has 31 credits, and I've seen 12. 11 of his total are horror, and many of them are the same ones I've already said. So of his writing, I've seen nine of those movies. Moving to our actors, I'll start with Mortensen. He has 71 credits. I've seen 17. Out of genre, I've seen Lord of the Rings Trilogy, Green Book, A History of Violence, and Eastern Promises. He has five that are in horror, and I actually think there's actually a sixth one that I just now realized as I'm recording. And I've seen five then, if you're counting six of them. I have not seen his first one, which was Prison. I did see Leatherface, which is TCM3, The Prophecy, Psycho Remake, and now this. And I've also seen Reflecting Skin, which might not necessarily be a horror movie to some people, but I consider it to be. His co-star of Sedu has 50 works, and I've seen five. She was in Inglorious Bastards, Midnight in Paris, Spectre, and Robin Hood from 2010. This is her first in horror. And then finally, I will look at Stewart. She has 58 movies that she's been in, and I've seen 13. Outside of the Twilight series, thanks to my wife, I've seen her in Panic Room, Happiest Season, Adventureland, and On the Road. In horror, she was in three. I have not seen her first, which was The Messengers, but I've seen her in Underwater, and now this movie. So for this, we start with seeing Brecken Dotries, who's portrayed by Sotiris, playing in the water. There is a cruise ship or a large sea vessel of sorts that is kind of sunk and on its side. Now his mother comes out of their house and tells him not to eat anything that he finds. Her name is Dujana, portrayed by Kornowski. We then see why she tells him this when he is supposed to be brushing his teeth, and it leads to a shocking event. It is from here that we meet our leads of Saul and Caprice, who are portrayed by Mortensen and Sidhu. As the synopsis said, they put on performances with a machine that was intended to do autopsies. Saul's body is creating new organs, and what they do for their shows are remove them. This changes the lives of those that see this, and it's almost like a fetish experience. There's a new agency that wants Saul to register these organs he produces. Running it are Timlin, portrayed by Stewart, and Whippet, portrayed by McKellar, who are invited to his next show. We also have Burst, who is portrayed by Bietti and her co-worker portrayed by Capeza. Now, they have never seen this machine that they use in this in person, so they're there to actually help, I believe, fix something that is not working right or is broken. And 
we also learn through them that these machines are stopped being made and it raises their interest. There is also a vice cop who is interested in all of this, portrayed by Bugeni. Now, the officer and organ registering agency have a problem, though. There is a group there that have done surgery on themselves to eat plastic. One of them is Lang, portrayed by Speedman, and he's working with these people. He comes to the show that Saul and Caprice put on. He is connected with Brecken and Dujana. Saul is thrust into a darker underworld and learns something about himself, and him along with Caprice must figure out who they can trust as they kind of navigate everything here. So now, now, I decided to go a little bit vague with my recap of the movie, as I wanted to just really kind of introduce the basic idea and the characters mostly. Where I would start would be that this is a Cronenberg movie through and through. It took me a minute to settle into the world, but once I did, it felt real. And he does such a good job at just having this established, and then you are just thrust into it. And it might take you a little bit to adjust, but once you do, it just feels natural. And that's something I always commend him for. This is set in the future, and we don't know how far, though. It is so grounded, and it shocks me that he can just do that with ease. This introduces a bit of commentary that the world has been destroyed by humans and its pollution. We are also dealing with evolution. Before getting deeper into this, what I wanted to bring up is the setup that we have with humans in that many can no longer feel pain. Surgery is done on a regular basis and anywhere. If you give consent, then anyone can operate. This is an odd thing, but it pulled my interest, and it makes sense for the world we are in. Now, with that taken care of, I just want to shift this over to the idea of evolution and how it's explained here. This is a theme that Cronenberg uses regularly. Offhand, you could say that is the case for Shivers, Rabbit, Videodrome, and in a way, The Fly. Saul's body is producing new organs. It is brought to his attention during the movie that maybe he shouldn't remove them. I was thinking this as well as I'm watching it. I like how the body is doing things and it plays into the overall story. Another aspect of the movie is dealing with evolution that I've already brought up is that humans can no longer feel pain. This is attributed to pollution and I like the idea. It is a hot button issue currently so it's pretty poignant. Evolution explains a lot of things and makes things problematic here. So the last thing I want to go into story-wise would be the idea of fetishism. Saul and Caprice feel pleasure through the performances they do. As I'm writing this, I realize that since no one can feel pain, or at least a bunch of people can't, they probably also can't feel pleasure in a traditional sense. There is a moment where Saul states that he isn't versed in the old ways of making love. Back to what I originally was saying though, the performance they put on turns people on in a way. There are multiple people who witness it and want to become part of it. This is something else that Cronenberg likes to explore in his movies. What it makes me think is it isn't for me, but I won't kink shame anyone either. For every one of these characters, it seems like the only way they can feel something is a high that they're seeking. So acting is where I'll go next. I think that it's good across the board. Sadu and Mortensen are great as our leads. They play off each other so well. This duel helps to progress the story. Caprice is less than him for everything because Saul does more of the investigation. There's also a good reason there. Caprice falls more into depravity though. I like Stewart in her role along with Speedman, Betty, Kornowski, Capeza, and the rest of the cast. There isn't a bad performance and they all progress the story in different ways. All that's left to go into would be the filmmaking. So this is a Cronenberg movie as I said, so it's on point with the cinematography. What I like is that we have in this bleak world that isn't our own and it's not necessarily in our face though either. The world around everyone is drab without really kind of going over the top. The subtle ways they convey this by having people have surgery done on them or the only thing that is different are the performances we see. The effects that are done, well, I think that the cinematography that we get here, the little bit of it, 
And, I mean, I almost think it's just there to kind of enhance, and we also get some good practical effects. Both works together to help make things look more real, even when it's, you know, more fantastical. The other aspect would be the soundtrack. I thought it was fine. It fit the movie role was needed. It doesn't necessarily stand out as I reflect on it, but it never took me out of the movie, though, either, which is kind of a bigger deal for me as well. So then, before I actually move to my final thoughts here, I'm going to just do a little bit of trivia that I could find on the IMDb page. This is the first film in 35 years not to have his sister, Denise, serve as costume designer. She passed away in the summer of 2020, unfortunately. This is his first feature film in eight years. The original script sends Ezek Stantz. The working title of this was Crimes of the Future, and I guess that other movie's also a working title was that. The script was largely adapted from an earlier project that he had written called Painkillers, which was in development in 2002 and had Nick Cage attached. Stewart replaced Natalie Portman as the role of Timlin. Fifth collaboration between Mortensen and Cronenberg, as he did A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, and A Dangerous Method. And Mortensen actually directed Cronenberg in Falling in 2020. Didn't realize that. Second film directed by Cronenberg to be titled this, as his first was from 1970, which the plot was different, which I figured that out here. Mortensen wanted to play the part of Whippet, but Cronenberg claims he harassed him into playing Saul instead. First directorial effort sends Maps to the Stars from 2014. The first feature film Cronenberg has made without cinematographer Peter Sosowetsky since they first worked together on Dead Ringers in 1988. So then in conclusion here, this is a movie that I tried to temper my expectations for. I was excited to see Cronenberg return into horror. This is one that did leave me wondering what I saw as I was leaving, but I've reflected it stuck with me. We're getting good commentary here about the environment and human evolution. It's also our writer-director exploring fetishes as well. I think the acting is good across the board. The effects were as well, both the practical and CGI. This is also well made with the cinematography to the soundtrack. After this first view, and I believe this to be a good one that is bordering on great for me, this is another one that I need to revisit as I'm compiling my year-end list as well. So my rating here for Crimes of the Future at this time is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section since I believe this movie is still in the theaters or not everybody has uh, got to go out and see it yet or anything like that. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. second featured review here for you is going to be Behind the Mask. This is from 1932. This was directed by John Francis Dillon, and then this was written by Joe Swirling, who also did the story that was in The Secret Service. This stars Jack Holt, Constance Cummings, and Boris Karloff, while also featuring Claude King, Bertha Mann, Edward Van Sloan, Willard Robertson, Thomas E. Jackson, Jesse Arnold, Clarence Burton, Rodney Hillbrand, Martha Maddox, Louis Nethio, and Harry Tenbrook. 
This is a crime horror romance mystery film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being an undercover federal officer serving time in prison fakes his escape in order to infiltrate a heroin smuggling ring. So this is a movie that I didn't know about until going through Letterboxd for ones from 1932. Seeing that, that this was another Karloff film that I hadn't seen so I could take it off my list was good enough for me. And I'll be honest, coming in I didn't know a whole lot about it and it was just the next one up on the list for me. So before I jump into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes on the key players and I'll start with our director of Dylan. He has 53 movies that he was in this role for. This is the first one that I've seen from him. From what I could tell, it looks like he did a lot with Richard Barlamets and Marilyn Miller, which makes sense because I don't I recognize the names but not their works. Then to our writer of Swirling, it looks like they have 45 credits, and I've seen two. As this person wrote Hitchcock's Lifeboat, they look to have done a lot of westerns, and this is their only horror film. Moving to our actors, I'll start with Holt. He was in 198 movies. Of them, I've only seen two, and both are in horror. The first was Cat People from 1942. He did do another one back in 1934 of Black Moon, which I hadn't seen yet. Then to his co-star of Cummings, they have 35 credits. This was the first that I've seen from her. This would be her only horror movie as well. And then just a glance once more at Karloff for an update. I've seen 33 of his 217 movies for 15%. He is my third most seen actor of all time. So, to kind of get back to something I've already alluded to, I came into this one blind as I didn't read the synopsis. I just knew that it was on YouTube and the aspects that I've already laid out. We start with Quinn, portrayed by Holt, talking to Jim Henderson, portrayed by Karloff. They're in prison and have time in the yard. Quinn reveals that night he is breaking out. Jim tries to change his mind, saying that he has powerful friends who are getting him out soon. Quinn states that he cannot wait for that. Jim does offer him a job when he gets out. We then shift to a house that belongs to Arnold, portrayed by King. He lives there with his daughter of Julie, portrayed by Cummings. Watching over them is Nurse Edwards, portrayed by Mann. They both feel like prisoners as she reports to an evil crime lord who is known as Mr. X. During this night, Quinn makes his escape and is shot in the process. He seeks refuge with the Arnolds and this makes Nurse Edwards suspicious. She is also suspicious when Arnold is strong-armed over the phone by Agent Burke, portrayed by Jackson. Jim then gets out and meets with Dr. August Steiner, portrayed by Van Sloan. During their meeting, Dr. Steiner notices that he has a tail and they need to lose him. Before they part ways, Jim relays about Quinn and they hire him for a job that involves the latter flying a plane over the ocean to pick up a shipment of drugs. Now, these criminals are a little bit smarter than what we normally kind of get here and it becomes a fight for survival. So... What I'm kind of getting at here is not everyone is as a seem. Quinn's real name is Jack Hart, and he's a federal agent from the synopsis. He isn't the only double agent, though. No matter what the feds try to do, the criminals seem to be one step ahead of them, and they might also be onto Jack as well. So that should be enough of my recap and introducing our characters. And where I'm going to start is that I noticed that many of the last movies that I've watched from 1932 aren't necessarily as much horror as I would if they were made today. They're quite light on these elements. This is to the point that I'm not sure I would consider them in the genre if they were made in this, you know, time frame with how light they can be at times. I do think this one goes a bit more into horror than some, but still light on those elements. Where I'll delve first would be the criminal organization. The movie is pointing out some commentary that I saw in a subtle way. 
The first would be prison. It is interesting to see how lax the system is, but it makes sense with how strict they are now. What I'm getting at is Quinn and Jim becoming friends. My problem with the prison system is that I don't think it works. Without going too political, I know that it's a broken system that is using slave labor. My true issue is that they're putting criminals together, allowing them to interact, and then making their lives harder when they're released. They are institutionalized to needing the structure to keep them out of trouble. Finding work after that when they're convicted with, you know, felonies isn't easy. We see what happens here. Quinn joins Mr. X's crew and Jim isn't as rehabilitated when he gets out. He goes right back to what he's doing before in crime. It is well this movie is 90 plus years old and the concept is still relevant and I would say even more so today. Getting to why I consider this to be horror would be where I'll go next. Mr. X deals in drugs. That would be a terrifying life of crime to be involved with. What I like is that he is a doctor working under him of Dr. Steiner. We see the depths of this guy will go. Patients are brought into his private hospital. He can keep them quiet. That is terrifying to me. The movie is also interesting as they don't suspect a doctor could be behind something like this. I think the idea comes from it being a profession that we should trust. We would see in the years to come that there are doctors who are psycho or sociopaths. Who are also serial killers. I like the movie is exploring this idea. Another aspect to go along with this is it's scary to try to be an undercover. We know at one point that Mr. X and his crew are taking out multiple federal agents. Trying to live a double life would you could you know die as easily as it does scares me and I can see there being horror in that. Now there isn't anything else I want to flesh out with the story so I'll go over to the acting. I thought that Holt does well as portraying the rough criminal of Quinn as well as the f tough federal agent in Jack. He fit for the chess game that he's playing to stay alive. Cummings is fine. She isn't given a lot, and she's more of just kind of love interest there. Being that her father is in too deep does add tension for her. Karloff is solid as a side character. I like seeing him when he's given a bit of work with King, Mann, Willard Robertson, and Thomas E. Jackson are all solid as well. Another actor I was impressed with is Van Sloan. He is given more in this movie than in other ones that I've seen. It is a shame that he seems relegated to minor characters as he's good as a villain as well. So the last thing I'll go into here would be the filmmaking. I thought that we got good cinematography. There are only a few set pieces that we see. I did like what they do with the ocean sequences. Other than that, I don't think they do anything too out of the ordinary. It is limited on the effects used, but it's also not that type of a movie. With how things play out and the characters is more important, the only other thing would be the soundtrack, as that didn't stand out or hurt the movie with how it was used. So before I get into my last little bit, I just have a little bit of trivia I want to do. This is part of the Son of Shock package of 20 titles released to television back in 58. The original version in circulation bears a 1936 re-release production code and the newer post-1935 Columbia logo. The Bureau of Investigation was established in 1906, and this is the BOI, or the BI for short. Its name changed to the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1935. So then, in conclusion, this movie is interesting enough. I like the different elements that we have, you know, coming into play here with an early crime film that incorporates some horror elements. Having a double agent infiltrating this crime organization is good. Using a killer doctor is an intriguing element. I'd say that the acting is solid across the board. This movie is well made, and after this first viewing, I would say it's above average. I'd recommend it for the cast and the elements for a movie this early into cinema. So my rating here for Behind the Mask is going to be a 7 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, as I don't think I really need that. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last break before I close out the show. Joy, 
I would like to welcome you back. And then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. For my next episode, I believe that I'm going to be doing another Truck Through the Twos, and I say that I believe because I've been going back and forth trying to figure out what 2022 release I was going to watch. Now, the 1932 movie I am going to be watching is The Living Dead. This is an interesting one that I found through Letterboxd, and when I was kind of looking at the cast, it seems interesting as I believe it's from Germany. And then also, I feel like the one I'm going to end up doing is They Live in the Gray, as a you know kind of a foreign movie double feature here as that other one definitely sounded interesting as well and on top of that i'll be doing more mini reviews of things that'll be on the summer challenge series as well as you know just other movies that i have to watch or just kind of have pop up on my list and everything like that don't think there's anything else i need to get you up to speed with here so once again thank you so much for listening and whatever you do today i hope you're safe and doing and have a great time out there this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 